Thank you very much, Claire, and thank you to Stefano for having me here. And I'm delighted to be uh, on the same panel with Eleke and Letizia. And I'm, I start because I think um, chronologically, what I'm going to talk about comes before uh, what they are talking about. So, as elsewhere, discussions on cosmopolitanism in and from South Asia have been mainly of two kinds. Either a support for cosmopolitanism as a desirable idea, ideal, an unfinished project in the wake of and against current ethno-nationalism, the, you know, the special issue of public culture um, is an example, which also in a way seemed to animate partly the call for papers here, and the historical recovery of older or pre-colonial forms of cosmopolitanism, both as ideas and, and as practices and behaviors, with a particular emphasis on spaces and social groups and a search for non-elite subaltern cosmopolitanisms. Um, so in the introduction to uh, this issue of public culture, uh, the introduction highlights the sense of timeliness, of even urgency about the question of cosmopolitanism, and also points out that today's cosmopolitanism is grounded in the tenebrous moment of transition, so it's distinct from other more triumphalist notions. And it also traces a historical genealogies of cosmopolitanism in the non-Christian Sanskrit world, particularly with Sheldon Pollock's discussion of Sanskrit as a cosmopolitan, trans-regional, and remarkably stable language across South Asia and beyond into Southeast Asia for over a millennium. And Pollock's idea of, the cos of Sanskrit's cosmopolitanism has been uh, then um, kind of echoed in discussions about per Persian cosmopolitanism or in, in fact in even big, larger area and Arabic. And here cosmopolitan is usually paired and contrasted with vernacular, with a, with a sort of uh, more limited reach. Um, the editors of this recent French volume instead explore cosmopolitanism produced by the ethnically, religiously, and culturally heterogeneous Sultanates and Mughal Empire, and the movement from east to west, so that news of Emperor Akbar's imperial ideology of Suli Kul, or peace with all, was carried back to Europe, torn by religious conflict, uh, that the book points out, and finds echo, in fact, in Kant's universal peace. And other essays instead explore the strategic and sometimes reluctant cosmopolitanisms of early modern missionaries and of Catholic uh, Portuguese outposts. And in, the no in this uh, book, cities, darbars, courts emerge as crucial sites of cosmopolitan encounters with heterogeneous groups of secretaries, interpreters, merchants, poets, and spies, singled out as the most likely cosmopolitans, highly mobile, at home in several languages, and alert to different codes of behavior. So three initial points before I, I come to my very quick four um, examples that I want to bring before you. First, as the search for subaltern cosmopolitans, either in sites of labor, ports, uh, industrial complexes, and so on, or as mobile labor, sipahis, lashkas, coolies, and slaves reveals, the elitism inherent in cosmopolitan languages, uh, like Sanskrit, Persian, and English, troubles cosmopolitanism as a ideal project. I say inherently not because, of course, I disregard the fact that Persian, English, and to some extent even Sanskrit can and have been, can be and have been used by non-elites and do not always index high status, but because acquiring and displaying knowledge and mastery of a cosmopolitan language seems as a rule inextricably linked, with a few exceptions like Letizia's poets, 
to a process of distinction, which involves looking down upon and excluding those who do not have mastery over this cosmopolitan language. So there seems to be a clear and important distinction to be made between elite poets and intellectuals who dabble or delight uh, in or cultivate vernacular forms and vernacular poets who dabble in cosmopolitan ones or who cultivate cosmopolitan ones and are usually become figures of fun. So there seems quite a bit of policing around these practices. Um, second, as the editors and contributors of, of this volume point out, expressions and practices of cosmopolitanism do not necessarily imply a pluralist attitude. Uh, they can just as well be strategic, temporary or forced. Um, so the call for paper suggested that attitude comes before expression, but I wonder, you know, I wonder, does it? Can't expression and attitude actually work at cross purposes? And third, what about literary cosmopolitanism? Is, the is it the literary expression of cosmopolitan ideas and attitudes, or some particular aesthetics that registers or privileges difference, difference and plurality without necessarily espousing them at the level of ideas? And I think you can see them in the kind of examples that I might want to bring. Um, so starting with, yeah, sorry. <laughs> starting um, with the kind of older uh, pre-colonial uh, cosmopolitans here, the, the Persian cosmopolitans. Here, um, this is a Persian uh, dictionary of, of poets, uh, poets from the town, uh, the hometown of the author for Bilgran, a small town, which is, however, becomes a very cosmopolitan um, town, uh, or figures important in, in this cosmopolitan um, kind of text, uh, and texts like this. So what you see here is that uh, you have a Persian-educated, Persian-grounded intellectual um, making uh, familiarity with Arabic and Hindi, so the vernacular uh, language and poetry, um, something of a mark of distinction, in fact. So the Bilgrami skill in composing an appreciately courtly Hindi poetry, though by no means unique, seems to have given them an edge over other Indo-Persian service people in the 18th century. While Persian was the necessary tool of social status and professional advancement, and Arabic seems to have become particularly important at this point, um, courtly Hindi poetry makes the Bilgrami stand out among all the other Persian-educated kind of um, service people stroke poets. Um, for example, their ability to compose chronograms in three or four languages on occasion. Um, and in fact, this is a pretty unique text in having a whole separate chapter with substantial quotations about Bilgramis who write in Hindi. But while, sorry, I, I need to look at it as well. <laughs> um, so what, 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 he, what he's saying is that he trained in Persian poetry and then he did not train in uh, Hindi poetry, but still, he has a kind of familiarity with it, and he has, in fact, um, um, he's not just sampling, but he's also posing an interesting um, equality between Hindi, Persian, and Arabic in terms of poetics. And in fact, he says in the art of the poetic descriptions of different kind of women, Hindi poetry is even ahead in their magic making. Um, but at the same time, so you have a kind of um, ideal equality in terms of poetics. When he comes to talk about practices, like when he talks about his grandfather, hmm, uh, Hindi there is obviously just um, for recreation. Hmm? So Persian and Hindi, the difference between Persian and Hindi and the hierarchy is quite, um, is quite clear. 
and, and this idea of you know, uh, strolling into the other, in the, in the garden of the other language, also works the other way around. So you have a, a courtly poet in Hindi who also who says, I was grounded in Sanskrit and Hindi poetics, and then I strolled through the Persian poetry huh? um, and recited poems and couplets. No? So this idea that I think the pre-colonial cosmopolitans are grounded in one cosmopolitan language and then stroll uh, somewhere else, huh? some in, the, in this other. And as I say, it's a form of, of distinction. Uh, my second example, what I, we could call a transitional cosmo colonial cosmopolitan. So I don't think this is what you expect a colonial cosmopolitan to look like, uh, or a colonial intellectual to look <coughs> like. Um, he was actually um, so um, a kind of from an elite merchant family in Benares in uh, the second half of the 19th century. He was actually even more multilingual than uh, his already kind of poetically inclined father. So he wrote in Brajbasha, which was the courtly Hindi, in Urdu, and even a little English here, uh, in this kind of satirical vein. And interestingly also, he was eclectic in cultivating both sophisticated and popular forms, uh, so songs as well as more, you know, in fact also uh, as uh, as well as um, sort of um, scholarship, as well as more elite, uh, popular, uh, poetic forms. But what is interesting for me here is that um, while, in fact, his practice, you could say, is very cosmopolitan and very mixed, uh, and, or not very mixed, very cosmopolitan, very, very open, very experimental also, his attitudes are already quite reformist and modernizing. So, for example, um, it's interesting that while, um, well, for example, he uses, uh, he tries Urdu poetry, or the Urdu Ghazal uh, lyric, and he tries it both for a, a sort of, a, uh, a and there's a tradition of using uh, Persian and, and then Urdu to talk about Krishna and talk about bhakti and devotion. And that's what he does in the first um, example. Um, Whereas the second example, the Ghazal form in Urdu, is um, in an allegorical play that he writes and is, the, um, um, is something that laziness, uh, the character of laziness, um, um, says. Huh? So it's no good to strive in the world, better to die than to rise and, and sort of go anywhere, better to lie. So Urdu as, um, as signifying laziness, decadence, uh, as well as, however, also, um, as also devotion. But when we come to his ideas uh, about language, um, already, you know, while the practice, uh, while he's practicing Urdu, as a uh, has a poetic practice in Urdu, at the level of ideas and ideologies about language, Urdu is very much the language of the mistresses, the beloved, the harlots, the concubines, and the pimps. Uh, and whereas Hindi is the language of, you know, the proper language of Indians and, and the Hindus. Mm -hmm. um, so the Hindi transitional cosmopolitan practices aesthetic cosmopolitanism in terms of expression, but not of attitude. And as you could see here, there's also kind of a elitism, you know, the idea that the lower orders are now starting to get educated, like the sweeper woman, and that's not something that he's not pleased at all. Um, my third, um, more, fam more familiar colonial, um, this is a more familiar colonial intellectual. I have a very short uh, quote, but 
Um, what for me this quote and, and, and the sort of longer essays from, uh, and review from which it comes is what I would call a, a peripheral cosmopolitanism where you know, the model is English, huh? English literature to which then Hindi writers have to conform and the measure by which they conform is the measure of their literariness and success and if they don't conform, uh, if, if they can't fit within any, any clear generic uh, category then uh, it's, a, it's a question of lack. Uh, um, and this is typically uh, a kind of a critic. Uh, cri I mean, critics are, of course, important at this time at, in developing new ideas about of, of what literature is and its social function. And they are typically the ones who, um, who would hold this kind of view. Um, but um, this peripheral mentality was not necessarily the only stance of Indian colonial intellectuals. Um, so the Malayalam editor and critic Kesari Balakrishna Pillai, uh, studied by Dilip Melon and Uday Kumar, looked at English rather as a conduit through which to re reach further to the literatures of Europe, France, Russia, Scandinavia, and so on. And um, Dilip Melon has argued that this was a cosmopolitan stance that both undermined England's supposed centrality and countered nationalist intoxication with past glory. Hmm? Uh, and there's this interesting, has this interesting formulation. I mean, I rely on, on Dilip Menon um, because it's not been translated. So the idea that the people of Kerala have to um, come in support of the Western world in continuing what it has done uh, in terms of creating a modern, uh, uh, a modern world. Hmm? Um, yeah. And my final example. Um, is um, the Urdu poet, translator, and critic Miraji, um, for whom cosmopolitanism entailed looking both east and west. Mm, this is a list of the poets he not 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 complete list of the poets he translated. Again, not in a peripheral position vis-à-vis -vis Europe or Britain. Um, and I think what is interesting that while for the early modern cosmopolitans, even if they were aware of the wider world, I mean, it's not as if they didn't know about you know, the world beyond the Persian or the Sanskrit cosmopolis, but in, in literary terms, their literary world was shaped by the reach of their languages. Uh, you don't have Chinese uh, poets in translated or you know, come to, coming to the attention uh, of uh, early modern uh, Indian intellectuals. Um, for modern cosmopolitans like Miraji, translation through English became a way of continuously extending and expanding one's literary world, in a sense, like, a bit like Letizia's uh, poet of the 1950s and 60s. Um, and while this is work I'd like to do rather than I have done, a few features of his translations practice stand out. First, that the, his translations are often accompanied or embedded in long essays, which perform an important kind of world literary pedagogical function. And it's interesting that the title suggests a national frame, England's poet, France's poet, but actually the essays situate each poet of body of work within a historical and social context that makes, it, makes them the outcome of these particular possibilities, not representatives of you know, national qualities. Um, and then the translations necessarily partly use his Urdu poetic idioms or terms, but largely stretch Urdu very well-established poetic language particularly in the direction of song poems. And actually, you can see how many of these are, are kind of um, um, 
presented as songs uh, as rather than, than poems. Um, and interestingly, and here I really want to finish, um, um, long essays were not the only form that Miraji used um, in, this in this essay, which I think probably starts as, a, as an old, uh, radio broadcast. Uh, Miraji playfully used radio technology to convey a sense of free mobility, of reduced distances, uh, indeed a kind of dizzying whirlwind world, of possibilities. So it goes, we are speaking from Hindustan now, now we're speaking from England, now let's go into, um, into Russia, speaking from Russia. And, and I can, you can see again a quite impressive list of, uh, of poets that, um, that he includes. Um, and I think the other thing that is, that is significant is that it's not, they're not all modern poets. Huh? So again, this translational effort is not necessarily about bringing India onto, you know, um, catching up, huh? this kind of catching up or delay, which is often, uh, often a way in which uh, world literature or non-European non and non-Western literatures are kind of positioned huh? or placed within world literature discourses, you know, as always in need of uh, you know, geographical distance and historical delay. Um, <coughs> so, as Gita Patele said, Milaji's translations were part of a comprehensive pedagogical effort to expand the vision and taste of Urdu readers, whose scope he felt was curbed by the narrow canon of Urdu poetry. Um, and it's interesting that he doesn't, didn't only translate, so he, he devoted the same kind of um, attention also to, um, to Urdu poets. Um, and as she puts it in the essays and, translati and translation, he explored and expanded the world in an intense cosmopolitan practice of reading, translation, and explanation that became his poetic practice too. His translation from earlier poets became his poetry, and his poetry filtered into his translations. Mm, and I wonder, in, in the sense, whether this, what he was doing, you know, this, this um, incorporating and not just catching up with the latest development, but there is a search for inspiring poets who belonged as much to the past of, as to the present, was so different from Eliot or Ezra Pound, for example. Mm? Um, so, you know, a colonial uh, framework would see would locate him as somebody who had, you know where the center is uh, is Europe and so he's doing something completely different from what the European poets are doing but maybe 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 it's not the practice is not so different. Okay, so to conclude, um, so in, as as I've shown in pre-colonial multilingual literary culture in the pre-colonial multilingual literary culture of North India. Literary cosmopolitanism entailed being grounded, as I said, in an elite poetic language and possibly some familiarity with another. So the cosmopolitanism was about you know, the, the, the great and vast um, uh, array of past and present poets within that particular cosmopolitan language. Um, with colonialism and new ideas about language and literature, a figure like Bartendu appears an interesting, as an interesting transitional figure who inherits this old elite cosmopolitanism dabbles in popular forms, um, upholds a new modern language and nationalist ideology, is not beholden to English, and practices eclecticism while rejecting it ideologically, in fact. Um, the third example was an example of um, English-educated educationist and critic who sets up this very stark 
division between English as the source of the, of the modern and of proper literary genres and provincial, not yet modern Hindi. Uh, so his cosmopolitan, in that sense, seems largely derivative. Where my last two examples offer, I think, important counterexamples to any simple equation of colonial impact with the peripheralization of, um, of colonial literature, whose reaction can only be anti-colonial nationalism. No? So if you see, those are well, their strategies actually quite different. So Pillai opens to European continental literature, um, whereas Miraji, through a poetic translational practice, and again, seems not so unlike what uh, the poets that Letizia works on, refuses to only look west or take part in this literary historical race. Thank you. <coughs>